welcome to Real Job Talk, the podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. Hey, Liz. Hey, Kat. How's it going? It's going. I'm super excited today. Cool. Me too. So we are, we're just going to get right into it. We are pleased to welcome Christopher Creel to the Real Job Talk today. Christopher worked for companies like HP and Perot Systems, some of those big companies, and also has been the founder of a couple of startups. Chris is the author of Adaptive, Scaling Empathy and Trust to Create Workplace Nirvana. Welcome, Chris. Please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. It sounds like you all have a great show. Thanks. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, um, I've been in technology research and development since 1982. I started programming in 1979. Oh, wow. And the internet was invented, uh, or actually was tested three days before I was born. So my life has been bookended by some very tumultuous technology changes. And so I've kind of define my life in that way, um, living uh, to take advantage of these changes as they occur. Uh, And this book, Adaptive, is really about how uh, these technological transitions have created a a lot of opportunity for us to rethink how work gets done. So that's why I'm so excited to be here to talk with you about this today. Well, we're we're super excited to have you on board because we, you know, we're all about uh, figuring out better ways to to do things in the workplace for sure. So, welcome, Chris. Um, so, with your book and writing your book, you spent a lot of time. I eight years researching. What prompted you at this stage in your career and at this point in time to write Adaptive? In 2013, the chief operating officer for the company that I was working for approached me about helping their company dramatically improve their overall productivity. Um, I had just come off of a project for him where I had built a big data practice for that company Um, that led to a billion dollar sale for that organization. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling pretty good about uh, where we were as an organization. Uh, But then when he came to me with this idea of creating a 10x productivity improvement for his company, it was shocking, um, but exciting. Um, And we talked about what kinds of changes uh, he felt would be necessary or that he'd be willing to accept. And he really said he, he didn't care. He saw a tremendous amount of technological change coming, demographics mm-hmm. changes coming, and he felt as though that company was a bit ossified. They were you know, a little stagnant. And so uh, he wanted me to really think about it from top to bottom. And so um, I had had this idea over time that creating that kind of change is not just a technology play. Yes, mm-hmm. technology plays an important role, but it's gotta be far more than technology. Uh, and so we talked about the f- this idea that it would have to be not only technology change, it would have to be cultural change, it would have to be organizational change. What kind of an organization could really adapt to these incredibly massive tectonic changes that are seem to be occurring on a weekly basis now? Yeah. And organizations just aren't prepared for this like they might have been, say, 20 or 30 years ago when things were moving much more slowly. And so that, that word, adaptive, really kind of stuck with me. Uh, and then I was at a conference uh, where I saw a lady named Lindsay McGregor who wrote a fantastic book called uh, 
Prime to Perform, where she talked about how most organizations focus largely on getting really good at what they do. This as opposed to getting really good at changing, to capitalize on their innate skills, to go after markets that might be emerging or technological changes that are coming. And that's what prompted me to go to my colleague and say, look, I want to do an experiment where we get rid of the org chart, we get rid of this concept of managers, and we instead organize just around strategic imperatives. And we do that with a collaboration platform like Slack, which had just recently come out. We started with another one called HipChat. Um, But what could we self-organize ourselves around a corporate strategy and leave those decisions about how to best deliver on that strategy to the individuals. Uh, He was really excited by that idea. I, of course, was really excited by that idea. And so we spent six years trying to prove uh, whether or not it could work. Mm -hmm. So really what that breaks it down to, Chris, is that a major company value is adaptivity and change. And you have to have employees that are open to that and also have pretty strong leadership capabilities. Um, could you speak to that for a minute of how you kind of looked at who you had and what you had and then started yeah. employing adaptivity as a value? Yeah. Um, I would actually challenge the idea that companies see being adaptable as a core value because they don't behave like that at all. With organizational mm-hmm. charts the way they are and positional power the way it is, you know, with managers who are promoted up through the organization, who see their part of the org chart as their turf, it's it's all very static. Um, and in fact, uh, it really cements people in place. And furthermore, it prevents individual employees from being adaptable because they have to play mother may I or father may I with their manager every time they want to go do something. Now, there, of course, there are great servant leaders out there. I've worked for many of them. Uh, This executive with whom I've worked is a servant leader, but he was a terrible manager, right? A manager is an enforcer of the orchard. They are there to assign work. They are there to make sure that you comply with corporate stricture. And so being adaptable means really giving the individual employee the tools and the empowerment to act on their own to drive the company's strategy forward. Now, the challenge is a lot of companies just don't have a good strategy. Or if they have Mm -hmm. a strategy, it's a mouse pad, right? Mouse pad strategies where you put some things on a mouse pad and and you say, okay, we're done now. And so one of the things that we discovered at the organization that we were trying at this out with was in order for employees to be really engaged and for themselves to feel as though they can be leaders, they have to know what that strategy looks like. They have to know what their cultural values are. With all of that information, most employees today are professionals. This is uniquely different than it was, say, 20 years ago when most employees perhaps were not professionals. They were you know, high school graduates. They did not have a college degree. Uh, but now that's dramatically different. Uh, oh, especially in technology companies, right? Especially Usually. in technology companies, yeah. but also in, um, you know, property and casualty. I've worked in property and casualty insurance companies, healthcare companies. Any information-based or service-based organization is loaded with real professionals. And yet they, they, those professionals aren't empowered to make their own decisions about how to lead 
in order to achieve a good strategic outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this whole topic is pretty fascinating, Chris, especially the point that you drove home initially about how change is just happening so fast mm-hmm. in our world. And as humans, how do we navigate that? And, you know, one of the things that I talk with, with, you know, with both the companies I work with and the individuals that I coach on a career coaching basis is, you know, let's talk about change and mm-hmm. how, how are you navigating change and how, you know, how scary is change for you? And, you know, how is change something we need to really keep in the forefront of the work that we do together? Because I believe that the more prepared we are to be able to adapt to change, the more successful we are in our careers. And I think probably, you know, as a race at this point, just because so many changes are happening so quickly and, you know, it can, you know, it can be really easy to get overwhelmed by it all, (laughs) you know, learning how to navigate, you know, how do you deal with overwhelm with change is probably a whole other show topic. But I I do think that this is when I, when I read your bio, I was like, oh yeah, let's talk to him because you know, this is, this project is fascinating. Well, so think about what most companies are designed for status quo. They have a chief operating officer. The chief operating officer's job is keep the trains running on time. That means keep the rate of change within the organization very small. Yeah, control it. And control control it. it. Yeah, managers, that's what a a good manager is to do. And look, Mm -hmm. I'm not knocking good managers. A good manager is necessary in an organization to keep the trains running on time, to ensure Mm -hmm. consistency, to make sure that people are disciplined in their work. But what I've discovered is that more important is to have an aspect of the organization that is specifically focused on keeping people limber. Because this is one of the interesting things we found is if you have Mm -hmm. a great strategy and that strategy says we need to do these three things in order to be successful, and then they give that to the organization and they say go. Well, what you've done is you've given a strategic directive to change to an organization that has spent years keeping things the same. Mm-hmm. So just yesterday, I heard a really fascinating report. It was on NPR, and they were interviewing a woman in China. And they were asking her about the 70-year the, uh, anniversary of the communist regime. Um, she had spent some time in America. And she said that the thing she loves about um, the communist government in China is that it creates stability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the United States... Every four years, everything could be tossed into the air. And so for her, that stability was the most important thing for her. And I get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, In America, we have designed a system that forces change every four years. So as a society, Americans are programmed for change. In China, they are programmed for stasis. Now, you know, I'm not going to place value on either one of those approaches. But I do think that with all of the changes that are coming out, it's no surprise that Americans are pretty good at being able to accommodate those changes because they've been, you know, their government is designed in that way. Companies need to begin thinking about that, right? Are they designed for change or are they designed for stasis? There was a time where being designed for stasis made good business sense because things changed very slowly. Mm-hmm. But in today's world, change comes at us so rapidly that it, we, need to tr- we need to shift our thinking away from being designed for stasis to being designed from the ground up for change. So what do you suggest if I'm starting a company tomorrow or I have a company now and I'm, I'm listening to it, I'm saying this makes sense. 
to be adaptive in today's environment. How does a company build an adaptive climate, an adaptive environment without going off the rails and having one person knitting hats while the other person's building DevOps software? Yeah. Well, the very first thing you need to do is you need to have the rules of the road. So Mm -hmm. um, if you think about the, uh, we'll go back to my example about being an American. Uh, We're a constitutional democracy. I trust you uh, both know the Constitution. You will understand what that means for you to be an American. You understand what capitalism is all about. Uh, And so we know what the rules of the road are, and we're we're a a country of laws. That enables you as individuals to make decisions about how to succeed in our economy because we have these, these guidelines. The same is true for companies. So... Whereas most companies, they start out with a great idea and then they grow organically. And oftentimes companies become a cult personality, like Tesla is a cult mm, personality around right. Elon Musk. <laughs> sure. Apple is a cult personality around, was around uh, Steve Jobs and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, what now happens is the rules of the road for those companies are to please that person, to please Elon or their jobs. What I would suggest for companies starting out is Get really clear about your rules of the road. What are your cultural values? And make those practical. Don't make them high, lofty things that you can't hold somebody accountable to or coach them on how to be better at. Right? So come up with what your company values are. And then come up with a cultural narrative. So there's a gaming company called Valve. And they did a really good job at this. So they're a, they're a gaming company. They wrote this great thing called the Valve Employee Handbook. I encourage your listeners to I've go read look it up. It's great, wow. isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. The thing that's wonderful about that Valve employee handbook is that it makes the employee a hero in a story. Mm-hmm. And so when they join that company and they read the Valve employee handbook, they become a character in that story. And so now they can operate inside of that story and help the company become successful. So good, clear company values, a good, clear cultural narrative, those two things are critical. Yet these are the two things that most companies screw up. Mm-hmm. So taking time on the front end. Yeah, their, their company values are a poster that hangs in a wall someplace or they are on their mouse pad. Their strategy is a PowerPoint deck that is, you know, you pay a bunch of consultants to create and then it becomes you know, largely forgotten over the year. Um, it is these two things that are critical to becoming an adaptive company. Then the last thing is you need to become far more flexible in the way in which you're organized. Mm-hmm. Almost every company today is organized around a technique that was patented in 1864 by a guy named Daniel McClellan. And that was the org chart. And mm. Daniel McClellan created the org chart to manage railroads and manufacturing organizations. Made a lot of sense back then because what you want is robotic precision out of employees. Robotic precision out of employees is great if you want stasis. It is terrible if you want creativity and flexibility and adaptability. And so you need to rethink the way that you're organized away from this concept of a static organizational structure to something far more fluid. And one of the things we found was technologies like Slack or Microsoft Teams or any of these collaboration platforms that are out there today enable individual employees to crowdsource problems without being told how to do it. And if you've ever 
been and what you know stood over somebody's shoulder who was on slack you'll watch it in real time teams will form in minutes to solve some problem and then they dissolve away uh, and that'll happen over and over and over again that kind of adaptability is happening right now and a lot of companies are trying to put controls around that mm-hmm. and and putting those controls in place what they're doing is they're continuing to reinforce stasis not adaptability Let's take a step back, and I would love to hear, in your words, what is an adaptive workplace? Tell us your take on that, because I think it's really interesting. So, uh, to me, an adaptive workplace is a workplace where individuals are empowered to drive the company strategy forward in the way that they see fit. They can... They can use their own career aspirations. They can align their own career aspirations with that strategy and to drive that strategy forward using whatever capabilities they have. This as opposed to traditional organizations where you're hired and you're told what to do. You're given a role, you're given a title, and you're put into an org chart, right? You're put into a machine, yeah, which has probably parameters around what you can and cannot do traditionally. That's exactly right. And so in that mm-hmm. in that way, what you've done is you've carved away all of the things that an employee might be able to bring. And I have a great example of this. Uh, so at my last company, uh, towards the tail end of our, the adaptive experiment, I was responsible for strategic alignment. So I worked with the team that was responsible for the corporate strategy. I would take those strategic objectives and I would figure out a way to align that with my team. And a guy from my development operations team, right, he's an admin for systems and stuff, told me he thought I was doing a terrible job. Mm. He's like, Chris, you know, I think the way you're doing this is just really ham-fisted. And I said, you think you could do a better job? He's like, absolutely. I was like, great, then you're going to be responsible for doing this. Now, this guy, prior to working with us, he was a uh, help desk guy for Apple. Prior to that, he managed a Dairy Queen. All right. And I said, go for it. This guy did such a good job Mm. because what he did was he brought his development operations experience to strategic planning. That combination was a powerful, powerful solution. And he really knocked it out of the park. And so in that sense, what we had was an individual who was empowered to stand up and say, I think I can do this a better way. And then given the opportunity to succeed or succeed or fail, had he failed, we would have you know, applauded and say, good job, uh, you know, better luck next time. But he succeeded. And so we were, you know, to carry him around on our shoulders. I think you just spoke to a pretty important point here that, you know, in this kind of adaptive workspace, you're probably taking more risks and trying new things out. So probably built into the culture, there needs to be an opportunity to fail in order to do it right. Yeah, that's a really compelling observation. And I would challenge it to some degree to say, I think people are taking massive risks right now. (laughs) Right. Because what you're doing is, if you think about who is responsible for making those decisions today, it's a handful of managers, right? The total number of managers, the ratio of managers to an employee in any given company is probably one to 10 or more. You're putting all of your bets on that those managers are going to make the right decisions, Versus the adaptive approach where you're saying, no, no, we're going to democratize and crowdsource the solutions to organizational problems. 
So instead of a handful of ideas, what we're going to get is all of the ideas. And through far more active and enthusiastic collaboration, can you now get to a place where you have some really novel ideas? And so I think I would recharacterize uh, what you observation by saying you're not taking more risk. What you're doing instead is you're empowering people to come up with their own ideas and then working together to get to a place where you have a, a clear path forward. But I think also if someone takes a risk and fails and people see that they're okay and that they're not ostracized or what have you, that shows them that they can actually take those risks and that it won't be career ending for them. So it's how people are treated both for success and failure when failure is truly okay. And if you think about the side benefit of what you just described, now you have an employee who just learned something. Mm -hmm. I think employees today are like, so there's a, this, you know, when you're, when you have a baby elephant um, mm. in, you know, in the old circus days and you stake them to the ground with a chain, they grow up thinking, mm -hmm. I can't pull that chain out of the ground because they developed that idea when they were a baby is they grow up to this incredibly powerful beast. Well, now you can tether them to the ground with a string because they still have this idea that this thing tied to my leg is preventing me from doing great things, from taking advantage of all this power I have. That's mm -hmm. what the organizational chart does for us. It is like a rope that tethers us to the ground and convinces employees that they can't do great things. And so the, what you described was is that this idea that when you tell an employee, okay, look, now you're going to be responsible for doing this thing, and they try and fail, they've actually learned something. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most important things mm -hmm. for an adaptive organization is constantly learning. Now, in addition to this, one of the other things that's really critical to an adaptive organization is active coaching by your colleagues. In a traditional organization, we are all responsible for our own careers and we get feedback from our managers. And that's it. We look to our manager for raises, for promotions, and our colleagues, they are to do that for themselves. In an adaptive organization, what you actually have are individuals who are rooting everybody on. If you make a mistake or I think you can improve something, I'm going to actively work with you to make yourself a better team player. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that we implemented as part of our process during this experiment was quarterly 360-degree feedback. Mm -hmm. And this was all facilitated through a chat bot that we had built in Slack. And so now what was going on is on a quarterly basis, everybody would get this 360-degree feedback from their colleagues. It was in relation to company values, cultural narratives, and strategic imperatives. And then uh, they would get a coach for that quarter. And it wasn't their manager, right? That was very mm -hmm. critical. It was somebody who had trust with that individual and empathy for that person to help them level up in those areas where they felt they could improve to be a better team player. That kind of support creates a level of empathy and trust within an organization that can enable you to create this virtuous cycle where quarter after quarter, every single employee is leveling up their skills with support from their colleagues, all in service to the company strategy. Well, and now, and this is going to go into kind of our chatbot 
there's tech, HR technologies like Zugata or Better Works mm -hmm. that is continuous performance and it's self-directed where you can say, I want to get better at public speaking. And then yeah. you're getting ratings and all these other things. And it really helps it not be this yearly performance review, mm -hmm. my bonus, my raise, everything in my life is dependent on this one piece of paper. It's a continuous learning, growing, and it's all based on the company's goals and feedback. And I think that HR going in that direction can only help for employees to feel empowered. Absolutely. And, and the thing that I think is really compelling about everything you just said is the role of HR. I'll give you a fairly crass uh, <laughs> quote from We've an old before, CIO yeah. of mine. Uh, so the, uh, the CIO uh, that I once knew said to me, you know, HR is ostensibly to help employees, but what it really is, is to protect the company from the employees. That's what HR, <laughs> that's the role yeah. HR has historically played. Re reducing liability, right? That's right. And then in this new world, with the changes that we're seeing, I believe that HR has to completely rethink their role entirely. And of course, this is a conversation that's already going on in HR communities, mm -hmm. but I don't think they're going far enough. They have to begin thinking about what the company's strategy is and the skills that will be necessary mm -hmm. to be successful with that strategy. And so now suddenly the two, HR and strategy, those two parts of an organization have often been treated as HR certainly has not been integral to the strategic performance of the organization and the strategy has not been integral to HR. Mm -hmm. I believe that those two functions must be joined now and to come to some new kind of capability to help companies stay adaptive. Because in the absence of somebody thinking about what the human skills are required to be successful strategically, you're always gonna be in this place where you fall back into stasis. Absolutely, and retention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're not thinking about retention, you're just missing such a big piece of your company's success strategy. And also, I've worked with firms that have actually treated their HR business partners as business partners mm -hmm. and allowed them to sit with the business and actually participate in meetings. I mean, both Liz and I are fortunate in that earlier in our careers, we worked for some amazing HR leaders who were true business partners. Mm -hmm. And it's night and day uh, working in an organization that actually values that partnership and actually practices it versus working for an organization where HR is more like a, a cop, right? The lady who wrote the forward to my book, a lady named uh, Valerie Elselton, she was uh, an HR leader at Coca-Cola, Bank of America, and my last company. And she played that role too. Um, she mm -hmm. was in the executive meetings. She was in the board meetings where she and I began to realize that we could do better was HR or that the people who play that function must step up their game and think strategically about the strategy. Mm -hmm. So you have your marketing teams, you have your product development teams. They're all thinking, okay, what do we need to do to penetrate this market? Great. Now, what skills do we need to be successful with that strategy? And does it mean retention of certain employees? Does it mean acquisition of new skills with the employees we have? Does it mean that we change our hiring strategy? Do we search in different places for talent? That is where I believe HR needs to go now. They need to get out ahead 
and think about, okay, what are the demographic trends that we can capitalize on? What are the kinds of things that we need to do with teamwork dynamics in order for us to be successful with this strategy? I don't know that there are many HR leaders out there that are thinking that they are the point of the spear for strategic success, but yet they should be. Mm -hmm. I could not agree more. So what advice do you have, I would say, for managers who want to be better at mentoring and coaching? And you know, someone's listening to this and they're like, well, I'm a manager. I have a team. We have a certain directive. I want to do better. What do you suggest? Where do they start? And how do they start with making their team more adaptive and then hopefully company more adaptive? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually working with a client right now on working through that. And I think that if I were speaking with a manager in any company and they were to ask me the same question, my answer would be quite consistent. And I would say, instead of you working with an employee to level up their skills, find one of your other employees and tell them to help that individual level up their skills. Mm -hmm. You know, you can still stay in the work assignment world. You can stay still stay in your managerial role, but you can say, Harry, I want you to work with Sally because Sally is really good at this teamwork thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, Sally, I want you to coach Harry for the next uh, few months on helping Harry level up his skills. Mm-hmm. Do that with literally everybody in your team. Pair them all up and say, okay, y'all are going to help each other to achieve these kinds of things. Now, traditionally, the way this has worked is the manager will say, okay, Harry, I'm going to work with you on this teaming thing. Mm -hmm. Sally, I'm going to work with you on this other thing. Right. What I'm suggesting is crowdsourcing that improvement and getting them working with one another. Now, as a manager, the benefit for you, you're going to see far more rapid improvement. You're going to see that team uh, really leveling up quickly. The other thing as a manager is that you're going to have a lot of time on your hands. (laughs) This is what happened to me during the adaptive experiment was when I implemented this model and uh, developed this bot to help me facilitate the entire process, I had a lot of time on my hands. It got to a place where I felt a little guilty (laughs) because the team was growing and, and moving without me and I began to feel a little bit like third wheel. And what that honestly enabled me to do is fall almost entirely into a coaching role. Mm -hmm. I simply became one of the coaches amongst all of the coaches in my team. Despite the fact that all these people reported to me, that's not how we operated. We operated as though we were just a, you know, we had a coaching team. We were a team of equals. My say took no greater weight than anybody else's. Uh, And then we worked together to constantly brainstorm ways to help level up the team. So that's like step two for these managers. So step one, Mm -hmm. get your people working together. Step two, bring everybody together, the ones who are the really good coaches, to begin thinking about, okay, what are the things that we can do strategically to help level up our team to better serve or support the strategy? Well, and I would say another piece of that is now as the manager, you can be listening to new ideas and helping work through them and evaluate them and brainstorming and strategic planning and all of these other things that when you're stuck in the weeds or coaching everybody one-on-one because you're the only one with skills who can teach, I don't think so, then you get so mired in that that you don't have time for the other work that you could be doing where you can be adding value and leveling up your organization. Oh, I completely agree. And doesn't that sound like so much more fun? So much more fun. (laughs) Yeah. 
So Chris, it sounds like you've learned a lot about building stronger teams with this process. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, gosh. So in the book, I list just dozens and dozens and dozens of examples. Um, One of the things that's unique about this book is that uh, it's not an academic piece that you see a lot out there uh, when people are writing books like this. A lot of these books, they're written from outside of the experience, whereas this was written from inside of the experience. And so some of the things I've discovered was the rate of change became so rapid, it actually ended up being a liability. Mm. Because I actually call it the adaptive redshift effect. What would happen is teams where we implemented this grew and evolved so rapidly because everybody was helping support one another to level up that they progressed far more quickly than the rest of the organization. Uh, That was a really interesting discovery. I also discovered that women in the workplace are far more hindered by the organizational chart than I had ever expected. Mm, Interesting. And in this model, women tend to outperform men because their emotional intelligence just seems to be instinctively higher. And so what I began to realize was that leveraging the uh, emotional intelligence of the women in my organization repositioned them so rapidly that within just a few months, they evolved into a completely different place within the organization. Case in point, um, had a lady uh, who joined us and she was miserable all the time. I talked to her manager, her old manager about it. She said, yeah, she's just, I've, for the last 20 years, I've known her, she's always been miserable. Well, yeah, we did a 360. That's, that's great feedback there. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but not uncommon. And so we finally yeah. asked her, uh, we'll call her Carrie. So I said, Carrie, uh, so we did 360 degree feedback. It all came back the way we thought it would. And we said, Carrie, why do you think it's like this? And she's like, I just hate my job. Mm-hmm. And well, that's uh, really f- quite interesting. Um, what would you like to be doing? Because we thought this is what you wanted to be doing. She's like, no, I never saw myself in this role. I've always wanted to do this more technical thing. But I've always been in this business analysis role. Mm. And we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to open up an opportunity for you to work with this technical organization. And so we made that opportunity available to her. And very quickly, she became this prominent technologist in that part of the organization and was able to get that, that team working just simply more effectively with one another. That kind of empowerment to be your true self and to bring all of your skills to strategic success is something I think is largely missing in most organizations. And I believe that women are in a particularly vulnerable spot within companies because of this very thing. And so that was actually something else I discovered that I found was really quite fascinating. What a great story, though. What a great story. I mean, those are the kind of stories we love to hear. Like, you know, if someone is not actually listening to people and, you know, being in a position to actually give them a role that where they'll thrive, right? That there's there's so much involved in that. There's communication. There's aligning with strategy and vision. There's, you know, it seems simple, but it's actually, you know, and it is simple, but I wish it happened more often. Yes, but she also felt 
comfortable enough to say, yeah, I'm miserable. And Mm -hmm. this is why so many people would have been like, I'm fine. It's just, uh, you know, nothing. And she felt like she could say something because you had set up an environment where she could without being penalized. I want to speak to that real quickly. Um, Chris, did you guys do any kind of special training for folks on how to receive feedback? Gosh, that is a, that's a fantastic question. We did not initially. Okay. Okay. And that was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's tricky. Yeah. Because, uh, what we found was generally speaking, probably 90% of the people that we worked with thrived, craved feedback. They, th- they thrived on that mm-hmm. feedback. They craved that feedback. But what we did was we would deliver that feedback and then we would immediately open up a coaching opportunity for them. We'd say, look, if you want to talk with us about this feedback, then let's talk about that. And so we would say, Mm -hmm. look, if you want to talk with a coach, let us know, and they'll help you talk through that. That was something we implemented later on, because initially when people get that feedback, it could be a little startling at times. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we also wrote in our handbook how to review and read your feedback. That was something else that we implemented because, again, we when we initially did this, we did not have any kind of training and it was not good. I want to probe there a little bit more. What are the top couple things that you recommend that, on how people receive feedback gracefully? So the number one thing I tell people is the feedback is not your reality. It's theirs. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is the reality that these individuals are living. And you need to try to empathize with their reality. So the absence Mm -hmm. of empathy in most organizations, I think, is probably key to dysfunction and disengagement within uh, the Mm -hmm. uh, employee base. And because they think they get all self-righteous, they're like, well, you know, Bob's just an idiot. No, Bob's, that's Bob's perception. So case in point, uh, we had a guy, his name's Kevin. I'm calling him Kevin. And everybody thought Kevin was lazy. So we did a 360 degree analysis and discovered that Kevin was serving more people in the organization than we had expected. And it was because oh. Kevin was so incredibly nice that he could never say no to anybody. Mm-hmm. Boundaries, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the problem was that Kevin was context switching between 10 or 15 different people at any given time. Their perception of Kevin was that he was slow. Mm. The reality was that Kevin was paddling as fast as he humanly could. He could only go so far. And so... What we did was we we said, okay, we can't just coach Kevin. We have to coach the organization on Kevin. We have to create empathy for Kevin. And so we went to all the people that he was working with him, be like, look, we gotta we gotta realign his 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 work. Uh, we gotta realign his, his relationships. He's gonna be working with far fewer people. And so our coaching advice for him for that quarter was reduce your network down to five. Yeah. From like mm-hmm. ten to fifteen to five. Mm-hmm. By the end of that quarter, those five people thought Kevin walked on water. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so, so in managing Kevin, you created his boundaries. Yeah, and coaching his social network. That's a really critical mm-hmm. aspect of this. Mm-hmm. That's something else that I think is really critical for managers to understand. And so back to the, the original question, though, when you're looking at feedback, you can't look at that feedback necessarily as a counseled for you or a judgment on your work. It is what the reality of everybody else, mm-hmm. what their reality is. That's what mm-hmm. feedback yeah. really is. It's their reality. And what you need to now do is you need to think about how can I change my behavior to, to make their reality a better thing? Totally. 
This is uh, super, super interesting stuff, Chris. I wish we could go on and on and talk for a couple hours, and I think we probably could. However, we do need to wrap up and tell the audience how they can reach you. Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. I post actively on LinkedIn. I love when people comment on my articles. I don't think I get enough comments. I love to get into discussion with people on some of the things I post. Um, Of course, you can always reach me at chris.creel at adaptive.team. And I encourage everybody to, if you found this discussion really engaging, uh, my book is chock full of more anecdotes uh, and advice. So please feel free to head out to Amazon. And if you like what you read, give me a review. We'll make sure that we've got the book link there, as well as I've got a couple other notes for links throughout this conversation that, you know, that, we, that we've talked about. So we'll, we'll put that on the show notes. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. This, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm going to be connecting with you on LinkedIn and definitely uh, watching as you proceed. I think it's, it's fascinating. Thanks Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I had a, had a great time. It was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Well, thank you. This is Real Job Talk, a podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. Our website with all Real Job Talk related information is realjobtalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, topics you'd like to talk about, and Real Job Talk stories. And you may find them featured on a future episode. Use the website or email us at realjobtalk at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Real Job Talk. And on Instagram and Facebook at Real Job Talk Show. My name is Kat Troyer. You can find me on Twitter at Daily Cat. And on LinkedIn, you can find me via Kathleen Nelson Troyer. And I'm Liz Bronson. On Twitter, I'm at Liz Beekson Salt. And on LinkedIn, I'm Liz Bronson. Real Job Talk is a tech reckoning production. Our producer is John Mark Troyer. Our graphic artists are Lexi and Zachary Bronson. And we're here by the water cooler waiting to talk with you. <laughs>